Good evening and welcome to episode 13 of Poetic Plonk. How are you doing? I hope you're doing great and settling into the new year very well. It's actually already the end of January, which is kind of mad actually. I mean, time usually does fly, but I think the first few months of a new year are just ridiculous. They just seem to fly by. Everyone's getting caught up in I don't know, various things, various plans, people have got their New Year's resolutions, not really one for doing those, but fair play, if it gets you to improve yourself, then you do you, enjoy life. So today we'll actually be exploring a poem suggested by a listener, it's called The Two-Headed Calf, so let's get straight into episode 13. So today's poet is Laura Gilpin. Gilpin was born in the Eisenhower era in the US in 1950. She not only had a career as a poet, but also as a nurse. Laura actually spent the vast majority of her career as a poet and started tremendously straight from the get-go. Her first poetry book, The Hocus Pocus of the Universe, received the Walt Whitman Award in 1976. And just for a little bit of context about the Walt Whitman Award, this award was only established a year earlier, in 1975. So Gilpin was in fact just the second ever winner of the award. Now, the main USP of this whole award is actually that it rewards first-time poets with, with some credit, essentially. So in order to be eligible to win this award, you have to have written a book-length collection of poetry, and naturally it has to be of high quality to be able to win this award. Which means you've actually got to write a fair bit of poetry in order to be able to create a book-length uh, collection. And not only that, but like I said, all of your poems have to be top-notch, top-tier quality, and they have to be flawless in that sense. So fair play to anyone who wins this award, because winning an award in general is absolutely incredible, But to win an award for your very first collection is a true feat and really shows just how good you are at your own art and craft. So back to Gilpin. Gilpin actually became a registered nurse later on in life in 1981, and she went on to join a pioneering organisation called Plaintree. Now, Plaintree are very much dedicated to humanising patient care in hospitals, This is also known as person-centred care in the profession. And this means that the core principles of person-centred care PCC are compassion, partnership and quality. And therefore, Plaintree really do strive to have the patient's needs as the top priority. And in order to do this, Plaintree, which is actually a not-for-profit organisation, works with hospitals and other organisations to certify various different centres. And this means that any patient is able to assess the, the standard of patient care that a hospital may have fairly easily. Now, of course, not all hospitals are certified by Plaintree because that would essentially well, defeat the whole purpose of a Plaintree certification. But according to Plaintree's website, their reach extends across at least 35 countries. So it's more than fair to say that they're making a difference in patient care. Now, Laura worked for over 20 years to help drive Plaintree forward, 
straight from its inception, she very much worked with the founding mothers of this organization. So this was a passion of hers, without a doubt. Moving us to another passion of hers, poetry, more specifically, Gilpin's poetry style. Now, Gilpin's poetry style has often been described by critics as confessional and elegant, leaving readers always wanting more as her endings can be tentative. Well, that was the literary magazine, the Chicago Review's perspective anyway. But for normal and regular people like you and me, I think it's fair to say that the readers of Gilpin's poetry really do have the, the true opinion and actually the true perspective on exactly what Gilpin's poetry style is like and the effects that it has. So let's delve into reader reviews on Goodreads. Now, one review actually says that her writing is simple, graceful in how straightforward it is. And the same review also describes Gilpin's poetry to be like that first sip of water you take when you wake up in the middle of the night, dying of thirst. Just to delve into a couple more reviews. Another one simply says, outstanding collection in reference to Gilpin's collection, the hocus pocus of the universe. And this collection actually has a 4.4 rating on Goodreads, which is very, very good. Actually, quite exceptional, to be honest. Now, on previous episodes of the podcast, we haven't always explored the most famous poem of the poet. I've often delved into well, maybe more niche poems that the, the poet would have written, or certainly lesser-known poems, not really the main one that they're very well known for. But it's fair to say that the poem that we'll be exploring today, The Two-Headed Calf, is by far Gilpin's most beloved and well-known poem. I actually found that a lot of the reviews of just Galpin's book on Goodreads tended to focus a lot on The Two-Headed Calf poem. And one review said, Maybe one day I'll read The Two-Headed Calf and not cry. Today was not the day. And another review said, My favourite is The Two-Headed Calf. It is a view of the fragile beauty of life. I wish she had written more. Now, whether the poem is a view of the fragile beauty of life or not, we'll explore after the poem. But just to hark back to the fact that she didn't write multiple and actually several poetry collections with her talent, because there is no doubt that she is a very, very talented poet. But to hark back to that, unfortunately, Laura Gilpin died at the very young age of 57, which is a true tragedy, and it really is a shame that we weren't blessed with more of her poems and more collections. She clearly enjoyed writing poetry. So let's tribute this episode to Laura Gilpin and everything that she strived and fought for. So without further ado, this is The Two-Headed Calf by Laura Gilpin. Tomorrow, when the farm boys find this freak of nature, they will wrap his body in newspaper and carry him to the museum. But tonight, he is alive and in the north field with his mother. It is a perfect summer evening, the moon rising over the orchard, the wind in the grass. And as he stares into the sky, there are twice as many stars as usual. Now that is a very short poem, but it is a heavy one. It's, I wouldn't say short and sweet, but definitely short and heavy. Now to delve into what is one of the overarching themes of the poem, acceptance. This, in my opinion, is one of the core themes of this poem. Now that can be acceptance through various different forms. Acceptance obviously comes through different means and modes, 
whether it's accepting yourself for who you really are, but also importantly, accepting others, no matter what they look like, what background they come from, what religion. And interestingly, when I read more about this poem, a few different articles mentioned how this poem is ever-present and important in the context of non-conformity, because we often find ourselves currently living in a world that rewards conformity. You know, people work corporate jobs with similar hours and days of the week, with two days off at the weekend, we have a certain number of holidays. Now, to go on to another topic that's not just linked to the poem, but also very much linked to acceptance and conformity, belonging. Belonging is a concept where we all feel connected to one another and essentially part of a, a wider group where we can relate to each other and also adhere to certain defined standards. Which links us nicely back to one of the themes of the poem, which is accepting each other. Now, even though we may be in different societal groups, we all obviously look different, we eat different, and also just live differently, it's important to accept each other for who we are. Now, obviously this is a poetry podcast, so I don't want to go and drift off and get too prophetic or anything. But with acceptance being a main theme, I thought it was important to just quickly touch upon conformity and a few aspects that conformity brings along with it. So let's explore some of the lines within the poem itself. So, straight from the start actually, instantly, there's so much sadness and tragedy that comes across, even in the first stanza. Tomorrow, when the farm boys find this freak of nature, they will wrap his body in newspaper and carry him to the museum. Freak of nature. Now, freak of nature is naturally true and a suitable biological term for a two-headed calf, as it is a genetic defect. But actually, freak of nature does come along with a fair few negative connotations, so it just adds so much more to the overall meaning and flow of this first stanza. And especially the term freak, I think we've all often heard this term used in movies to describe a, a societal outcast or just someone who might be wired differently, but it's quite a hefty, a hefty word to throw at someone because it essentially states that you're not part of our society, you're, you're an outlier as such. Now, obviously Gilpin isn't using this in any way at all to, to insult the two-headed calf, not at all, but actually to conjure sympathy, I think. And I think one of the saddest things anyway, when reading into calves and especially calves with genetic deformities, is that they really live short lives and by short lives it can be up to two days. So it's truly sad that this, this calf will only live for, well, in this poem, will only live for a day and then essentially be wrapped up by a couple of farm boys and a bit of newspaper and and honestly used as a prize and put in a museum where, sure, the boys might earn a bit of money from it, but at the end of the day, the, the poor calf would be presented in a museum to show people that it's deformed and that it's an outcast. Essentially, no one's going to be going to the museum to to admire it and say it's beautiful. The way it would be presented would very much be the opposite. Well, in my opinion, anyway, maybe that's just my uh, negative or pessimistic view of society. But I think when things like this are, are put into museums or any animals with genetic deformities, it's it's not really often used in a way to educate us, but rather say 
hey, look at this freak kind of thing. Exactly how a circus would do a similar thing with, well, I'm not sure they do anymore, but definitely back in the, in the 1900s, circuses would often have have smaller people in their shows to honestly just create entertainment based on their their height and size, which is sad in itself, but I think society's moved in a better direction now where circuses don't really take advantage of those people as much anyway. And also animals. I think that that was also a big thing with circuses is how much they abused or definitely exploited animals. But anyway, back to the poem. And as I was saying, it's truly sad how the calf would essentially be put in a museum for people to just gawk and stare at. But what actually sticks out to me in the first answer here is the calf being wrapped up in newspaper and, and the symbolism that comes along with that. I think the newspaper symbolizes the fleeting nature of life, as the calf clearly wasn't born long ago, and unfortunately its soon-to-be-dead body will be transported in newspaper, which emphasizes just how short of a life the calf will live, but also the actual imagery of the boys carrying the calf in newspaper. For me, it adds a touch more of infantilization to this line, which yet again enables Gilpin to really feed off of our emotions and, well, to put it simply, make us feel something for this poem. Because even though that sounds quite simple in its essence, we can often read poems where, well, okay, it might be a slight exaggeration to say where we would just read a poem and be emotionless, but it definitely takes something special to be able to to really get the emotions out of us. And whether that's just shedding a few tears, I think it really shows the power that not, not just the power that poetry has, but the power that words have and language, words on paper. Now, moving on to the second stanza, which is actually, the, in my opinion, the complete opposite of the first stanza. Now, the first stanza is very cold and we tend to feel quite sad and it is a bit of a tearjerker, to be honest. But I think the second stanza outlines a completely different perspective to view the situation. We're instantly told that the calf will spend its last night with its mother, enabling the calf to feel the purest love out there, a mother's love. Unfortunately, it'll be way too briefly because it'll only be one night. But still, the fact that the calf has the chance to be able to feel its mother's love is also showing the acceptance that the mother shows to its calf because they're both at the north field with each other. Now, obviously, the mother could quite easily disown the calf and not be at the same side of the field. So I think this also shows the acceptance of, of the mother in the poem and exactly that, the unconditional love that mothers tend to have. But also, the calf is able to admire the beauty of nature on its last night, looking up at the moon and stars on what therefore must be a pretty clear summer night, which is confirmed with the line, perfect summer evening. So I think what's also beautiful here is that Gilpin's form and her phrasing, it positions the calf's last night in a way that it is able to enjoy it, which obviously the calf doesn't really know any better with its genetic deformity, but it's nice to know that the calf isn't in pain, because I think a lot of us would, as soon as we hear that there's a two-headed calf and it's a freak of nature, that the next day it will be wrapped up in, in newspaper and taken to a museum. It definitely, in my mind anyway, the first thing that crops up is not 
the the calf will be enjoying its last night with its mother and feeling love, looking up at the stars, admiring life. It's more the calf's probably just in a stall somewhere in a farm excluded from its mother excluded from its brothers and sisters and essentially just stored away but actually it's not the calf does indeed get to spend the last night with its mother and and enjoy enjoy the little bit of life that it's blessed to have sure it's only a day but it gets to admire all the best things about life now a lot of us do have the luck to be around for for quite a while, well, in comparison to the calf anyway. But we often do just experience exactly what the calf has, just in a much longer space of time. So in that sense, it definitely just emphasizes the fact again how important it is that we really do spend the time with the people closest and dearest to us. Whilst it's easy to explore the differences in the poem, I'd actually like us to touch upon a distinct similarity that we all share with the calf. It's a similarity that no matter what background, location, financial situation or religion you have, it's something that we all have no control over. And that is the lack of knowledge or insights of what's coming tomorrow. If we really think about it realistically, none of us know exactly what's coming in such a short space of time away as well. Even if we're about to go to bed, what seems like less than 12 hours, well, it is usually less than 12 hours away. I'm sure you might be thinking and know that you have work the next day, but realistically, you can't guarantee that. You never know what's going to happen if you're going to get a certain phone call or if something happens on the way to work, not to yourself, just in general. So it truly does also show the, the fragility of life and exactly how important it is that we just have to accept and surrender to the idea of having no control. So this poem definitely makes us reflect and more importantly realize just how important it is to live life in the present moment and enjoy each passing moment as it goes by. Enjoying those summer evenings with friends or family, no matter the season, Always enjoying the moments that you get to spend with the people you hold closest to you. There's the there's a quote that that says your present predicts your future. And I actually think this is a quote that's extremely relevant here. As your actions in the present correlate to exactly what will come in the future. Sure, that's obviously not guaranteed, as I said, we never know what's around the corner. But usually our present actions will naturally influence what comes in the future. So I think that also links to the importance of acceptance, especially when it comes to oneself. Slowly taking the steps to accept yourself for who you are day by day through small actions that will, well, if you take it day by day, these small actions will snowball into really respecting yourself a lot more, even if they're just small steps each day. And on the other side of things, if you're just going through life, obviously working your nine to five and essentially living for the next day, then I think it's actually important to remember that life is so fragile that you really do have to live in the moment. Because obviously, whilst planning for the future is clearly smart and we should be doing that, it's not the be all and end all that we should be spending our everyday lives worrying about. I read a great summary of the themes that the poem talks about, and it said, if you focus on the newspaper wrappings rather than the stars, your life will be focused on your end rather than enjoying the moments you have now while you're alive and truly living life. 
So that draws us to the close of episode 13. Now if you enjoyed the episode, then do go ahead and click on the bell button to keep up to date with new podcast episodes. So thanks again for tuning in. And on that note, I'd like to wish you all a good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. I'll see you on the next one. Thank you.